The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the normal Christian life. The life of Jesus Christ reproduced in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Pastor Dale introduced last Sunday evening, we're taking several weeks to focus on each of these aspects of the Christian life. And Pastor Dale introduced us last week not only to the series, but the first fruit revealed in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of love. Tonight we focus on the fruit of joy, and I must say that it is with some trepidation and some irony that uh, the date to speak on joy fell to me because uh, I am, well, Honestly, I'm sort of an Eeyore kind of guy. My family can bear much witness to that, sadly. There's a, there's a melancholy streak that runs within me, and um, joy is, is quite challenging for me, and perhaps it is for you. And yet, I'm thankful for the body of Christ because there's something about getting together with God's people that the Spirit uses to uh, turn me inside out and to get excited about, uh, in the best sense of the word, joyful about who Christ is, what Christ does for me and for His people. So tonight, I'd like to preach on the fruit of joy, the holy spiritual fruit of joy, the fruit of the Spirit flows from the desires of the Spirit, that the Spirit works in our heart as He works together with and by God's Word. I'd like to preach from Isaiah 35. This evening I'll be uh, using the 1984 NIV version. It's the translation in which I first learned this passage, and uh, it's a passage that has brought me great joy, and it's, it's, it's quite moving and uh, I trust that the Lord will use it to steer up your joy as well. To set the stage before I read the text, we're about halfway through the book of Isaiah, the prophet. God's people are living in exile under the brutal captivity of the Babylonians as a consequence of their turning from God and turning to man and setting their hope in Him. And yet, God never gives up on His people. Through Isaiah the prophet, He speaks a word of hope to kindle within me and within you a heart of faith that expresses itself in a life of joy here and now. So let me read the text for us. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The desert 
and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is God's Word for you, His people. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank You that You always speak the truth to us in love. We pray that You would give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that You would help me to speak a Bible-shaped word in a Bible-shaped way, that this text would land, that it would re-script our way of seeing, our way of wanting, our way of living, our way of praying. Not by might, not by power, but by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to try to accomplish a few things this evening. First of all, we'll consider a promise revealed. We'll take some time to actually work through the text and seek to give explanations of significant parts of it. But because this is an Old Testament text, we do not want to just 
stay here. We want to trace the themes into the New Testament. How are they revealed? We'll consider gospel elaborations that build and unpack further this Old Testament explanation. And then finally, we'll consider a promise believed. So that's where we're heading. First of all, a promise revealed. Secondly, a promise fulfilled. And thirdly, a promise believed. A promise revealed. The text is structured quite ingeniously. It's as though the writer has formed three concentric circles. There's a center, there's an inner ring, and there's an outer ring. Let's begin at the very center because that's where the writer especially wants us to focus. Verses 5 and the first half of verse 6. Here's the center. Here's the promise revealed. Your gloom will turn to joy. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Two sets of faculties. On the one hand, two faculties of reception. The eyes of the blind, an image of spiritual ignorance, the inability to see and recognize God's truth revealed. The ears of the deaf, an image of spiritual stubbornness, a willful refusal to hear what God says. But did you notice the transformation? You can't miss it. The eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. It's a promise. On the other hand, there's the faculty or faculties of action. The lame body, an image of spiritual paralysis, the inability to respond to God in obedience. And secondly, the mute tongue, an image of spiritual silence, the inability to respond to God in worship and witness. But behold the transformation, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. It's at the very center of the text. Your gloom will turn to joy. But then there's a, another circle just beyond this one. Verses 3 and 4, and the second half of verse 6 and 7. Your God will come to save. Because these centerpiece verses beg the question, how will this be? Answer, your God will come to save. Two images are set forth. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, He comes as a battle-winning warrior. Isaiah speaks to those living in exile. They are fearing desertion. They are fearing danger. They are fearing destruction. And so God, speaking through Isaiah the prophet, speaks in the imperative 
urgent commands, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, and say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. So, Isaiah not only speaks in the imperative, but he also speaks in the declarative. He brings timely comfort. Your God will come. Literally, the text reads, behold your God, the God who is still committed to being your God even after you have failed and drifted and gone astray. Behold your God. He will come with vengeance. He will come with divine retribution to save you. In other words, on the one hand, your God will put those wrongs committed by you and me to right. He will come to save sinners. And He will also come with retribution, meaning He will put right those wrongs that you have suffered at the hands of others. He will come to save not only the sinner, but also the sufferer. That's the first image. He comes as a battle-winning warrior. But the second image in verses 6 and 7 is that He comes as a life-giving river. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Notice the three reversals. The burning sand will become a pool from no water to abundant water. The thirsty ground, a bubbling spring from needing water to providing water. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow from barren and deserted places to flourishing and repopulated places. It's a spectacular vision of transformation. It begins at the center, it grows a little bit to the edges, but then there's this outer circle, verses 1 and 2 and 8 through 10, your joy will last forever. In verses 1 and 2, the writer sets forth another image that will actually overlap and be superimposed, a second image. The first image, a new creation will welcome you home. Verses 1 and 2, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Isaiah stands on tiptoe, as it were, looking down the corridors of time, and he sees through the portal a world that is transformed from a desert to a garden. We know because of Adam's sin, creation was 
subjected to God's curse. And we wake up in a barren desert. It's the language Scripture uses to to capture the consequences of defecting from Him. And all of us in Adam suffer that same consequence. But because of God's grace, the text is teaching us, even preaching to us, creation will be liberated from God's curse and restored to God's blessing. A blooming garden. Why this bursting into bloom? Because creation has been set free, or so will be, from the reign and the presence of sin. It will be given the fertility of Lebanon, a very fertile region of Palestine. It will be ordered with cultivation like Carmel, a very beautiful aspect of Palestine. And it will possess the innate beauty of Sharon, the prophet says. Why this bursting into song? Literally, the text reads, the desert will be glad over them. In other words, a new creation will welcome home the children of God. Why this bursting into song? A homecoming is up ahead. That's verses 1 and 2. A new creation will welcome you home. But in verses 8, 9, and 10, there's a second overlapping image. A sure highway will lead you home. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. This is a very important theme reaching all the way back to Isaiah's vision in the temple, the holy place. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The prophet envisions a second exodus as God led His people from Egypt through the desert to Canaan. So God will lead His people from sin and death through the desert to a new heavens and new earth. And did you notice this is protected travel? No lion will be there. Nor will any ferocious beast Get up on it. They will not be found there. This is safe. Not without hardship, but ultimately safe in God's hand. But notice too, this is restricted travel. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. This is not the distinction between those who sin and those who 
do not, for all have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. The distinction is, the reference is to those who do not avail themselves to God's provision for sin, those who disqualify themselves by ignoring, by rejecting, by not believing, by not receiving God's provision for their sin. So there's a choice. to return, to believe. That's stating it negatively, but the text also states it positively. Only the redeemed will walk there. The word points to a very rich theme running throughout the Old Testament. The Redeemer, the Goel, the next of kin, the person who has the right to intervene on behalf of his helpless relative, one who is willing to shoulder the burden of a person's need and pay the price for freedom. Only the redeemed will walk there. And so here, God is, is, is giving us the good news that He will identify with His people. He will not give them over, ultimately. He will be their Redeemer. He will bear their sin. He will pay whatever it takes, their penalty, to bring them home. So there's protected travel. There's restricted travel. And there's joyous arrival. Verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord will return. These, I think, are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will, can you see it? Catch up with them and overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's a grand homecoming, and the Lord's chase is inescapable. As a warrior, He overtakes His enemies and brings them into judgment, but as a Savior, He overtakes His people and brings them into everlasting joy. So where does that leave us? We've heard this good news preached in the gospel according to Isaiah. He's referencing the anticipated return of Israel from exile, and there were beginnings of that return, but Israel faltered. And their return was postponed. But look, the New Testament reveals a true Israelite who falters not. Jesus, our pathfinder, who brings many sons and daughters to glory. And this joy is for us in Him. So let me pivot here, having explained a bit of the Old Testament text, let's trace these themes into the New Testament and find how they come true 
fruition. We've looked at the promise revealed. Now let's consider the promise fulfilled. And what is surprising and yet revealed in the New Testament is that the way that God fulfills His promise, it unfolds in stages. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. First of all, there's the inauguration of the kingdom. And when we read in the Gospels, we find Jesus marching down a highway. This theme is especially prominent and rich in the Gospel according to Mark. Chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, your highway. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for Him. And the theme continues to build momentum. Mark chapter 8, Jesus and His disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, along the highway, Jesus asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Mark chapter 10, as Jesus started on His way, A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The text continues, they were on the way, the highway, up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. And then they come to Jericho as Jesus and His disciples come into the city together with a large crowd leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the way, the highway, begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus along the highway. So Jesus marches down this highway. And along the way, Jesus bears witness to His work. Do you remember John's disciples came from John the Baptist who's in prison and he's beginning to wonder. He's having honest questions. He sends His disciples and they say to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And remember how Jesus responds. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. In Jesus, Isaiah 35 is 
coming into fulfillment, the inauguration of the kingdom. But there's the second phase, there's the continuation of the kingdom. Waters will gush forth in the wilderness, even today, because we live in the day, as Paul describes, we live in that period of time on which the end of the ages have come. Jesus, remember in John chapter 7, it's the last and great day of the feast. And Jesus stands up and cries out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. From, as the Scripture has said, from my innermost being will flow from me to you rivers of living water. And the Apostle John adds his commentary, Jesus speaking of the waters gushing forth in the wilderness, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Peter at Pentecost stood up and explained. God has raised Jesus to life, exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out the Spirit upon you. Waters gush forth in the wilderness. There is a, a stream, a river, that makes glad the city of God even today. Flowing from the final temple, Jesus Himself. Remember the vision of Ezekiel? That strange sort of vision where, where out of the back of the temple there's this river. Actually, it, it begins to leak and then it becomes ankle deep, and then it becomes knee deep, and then it becomes waist deep, and then it continues to rise until you can swim in this river, the healing of the nations, the Spirit poured out from Jesus, the resurrected, exalted, final temple, waters gush forth in the wilderness to produce in me and to produce in you the joy of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And then, of course, there's the, the third and final phase, the inauguration of the kingdom, the continuation of the kingdom, but then the consummation of the kingdom. A transformed world will greet you. The Apostle Paul, you can just hear reading between the lines as he's as he's getting excited. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This transformed world that will greet you in the consummation, this uninterrupted joy that will overtake you. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. I am making all things new, Jesus said, as revealed to John in Revelation chapter 21. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
All of this to say, a promise revealed, a promise fulfilled, and now a promise to be believed. And this is your personal application. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, the same letter in which he reveals the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5, throughout the letter he, he's doing some pastoral examination on the hearts of his readers then and on the hearts of us this evening. He asks some very pointed pastoral questions. He says, for example, in chapter 4, verse 15, what has happened to your joy? Where did it go? Yes, you have good reasons to be sad. Hard things happen to us, and bad things overflow from us. So you have good and understandable reasons to sorrow, but you have bigger and better reasons to rejoice. Because waters gush forth in the wilderness. But then he asks another couple of questions. In chapter 3, he says, I've just got one thing I want to ask you. Just one. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question, right? Of course, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. This is a theme running throughout all of Paul's letters, and it's so important that we catch this this evening. So much so that Paul will say in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, this beautiful benediction, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. That's the conduit. As Pastor Dale said this morning, that's the instrument, the channel that connects you to Christ and His rivers of living water. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit with hope. The point is, the Spirit flows to a heart of faith and through a heart of faith to produce a life of joy. Before moving to West Michigan, I was very much an amateur in navigating the winter months. You guys are real pros up here and we're learning slowly. One night in North Carolina, it got down to 11 degrees. And um, at that time, Cindy and I were living in a home that was outside of the city limits, and there was a well house 
And of course, we woke up the next morning and turned on the water, but there was no water. And uh, of course, I'm the one uh, sent, and rightly so, to go check the well house, which I did. And um, I'll never forget the site. There's this four-inch PVC pipe that is connecting the well to the main line into the house. And kids, this four-inch PVC pipe, it looked like a busted straw with a Slurpee and ice just oozing out of it. Well, I scramble. I try to figure out what to do. I call the neighbor. They get me some basic instructions, and, you know, they tell me to go turn off the water supply. I do. I called the plumber. Things thawed out the next day. The plumber came with a replacement. Oh, it was a beauty to watch. And he connected that four-inch PVC pipe to the well, to the main line, and then he said, now go inside into the basement, walk in basement, and turn the water back on. And so I did, and I'll never forget standing there in the basement, turning the lever, and then all of a sudden, waters gush forth all throughout the house, right over my head. It was quite an experience, and I, and I started thinking throughout that day, that four-inch PVC pipe, that's what faith is. Grace flows through faith. Faith is the four-inch PVC pipe that connects you and me to the person of the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing and believing the message that was preached? This is how it works. This is the fruit of the Spirit overflowing and generated by the desires of the Spirit that the Spirit creates in our hearts as we believe. Now this week, I don't know what the details are going to look like, but you're going to face something. You're going to come to a fork in the road, and either you will believe that the Spirit will give you joy even when the heat comes, or you will not believe. May God give us in that moment, that very mundane moment, a holy spiritual instinct to believe the promises revealed in Isaiah 35. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And thank you that this is not something we manufacture. It's not grin and bear it, try hard and do it. No. 
Our sheer will cannot overthrow our self-will. There's only one thing that can put to death our unbelief and raise to life a faith in Jesus. And that is and are your very precious promises by which we escape the corruption and the sorrow that is in the world caused by evil desires. But sin living in me and sin living in my brothers and sisters has more than met its match in the Holy Spirit, poured out from Jesus, flowing to us and received by faith and producing in us not only the desires of the Spirit, but also the fruit of the Spirit. Would you help us grow as a church that shouts for joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and conclude our worship by singing together. Let the nations be glad.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might overflow with hope. Amen.